Okay, so I'll go ahead. And tonight's talk on the theme of embodiment, which we started last month, and we'll have a couple more months on that, um, is about integrating and working with psychological material on the path. And last time I was asked to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what do I mean by embodiment? And it's, it's not an area that's been really talked about a lot in, um, at least not from this perspective in Theravadan Buddhism. Although I may do a talk at one point on the, on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which really actually have a lot of teaching about embodiment in them, if, if you really, you know, look at it from that perspective. Um, so there is there there are more formal traditional teachings within Theravadan Buddhism on embodiment. I'm talking about it from kind of the the modern perspective of um, how do we take our practice off the cushion? What happens when we're not meditating? Are there ways to work skillfully with ourselves, with our regular life? Um, with our inner life off the cushion and in relationship and as we're functioning in the world, how can we, how can we do that? And what are some of the things to consider and skillful ways of working with that so that our practice isn't just confined to the, the short amount of time that we're actually meditating. I mean, if we think about, um, the rest of our life, there's an awful lot of lot more time to have opportunities to work with our inner life um, the, during the rest of the day when we're not meditating. So there's a way that I feel it really accelerates a person's deepening in their practice if they are considering both their on the cushion and off the cushion time as part of um, their practice. And so I'll come back to the three, um, the three main practices in Theravadan Buddhism, heart-based practices, which really mainly are the Brahma Viharas, the Samatha practice of concentration and serenity, and um, Vipassana, insight meditation. And really, I'm going to focus on more of a Vipassana-oriented um, way of looking at our our off-the-cushion practice of working with psychological material that comes up. So when I say psychological material, um, that could either be ways that we're seeing psychological material in our meditation, like, you know, whatever is taking a person off of their meditation object, we're really seeing psychological material, personality patterning, hindrances and defilements as they're known in Buddhism. But if you think of it as personality patterning, that's a lot more neutral. It's really the psychological material that makes up the, the ego self. And so how do we work with that off the cushion um, using both our Buddhist practices as well as some of the modern understanding of psychology and other, um, other traditions working with trauma and such that we've discovered in the last hundred years that really are quite, quite complementary and useful to what we've known for, you know, 2,600 years of Buddhism. So in terms of the Vipassana oriented um, ways of working with psychological material, there's, there's really two. And, and the first one that I'm gonna mention is the one that I'll explore more deeply. 
So the first way is to really use the, the Vipassana um, faculty of investigation, of open-minded, um, open investigation into our experience. Um, but it's like we're doing Vipassana off the cushion. And sometimes this is called inquiry. And I know that um, Anna and Terry have been working it with you with inquiry, but we don't have to necessarily give it that name. We can also think of it really like Vipassana practice in a way where we're looking, you know, the first thing is to be aware of what our patterns are that we're seeing both on and off the cushion. So for example, if somebody sees on the cushion, either home practice or on day longs or on retreats, it's sometimes easier to see our patterns because we're in a little bit more of a pressure cooker, but we see the same things in our daily practice. What is it that we keep what are the thought patterns we keep coming back to? Um, are, and the three main categories of patterns are desire, aversion, and delusion. So those are the defilements. If we look at the hindrances, we've got the same three, desire, aversion, delusion, um, delusion being uh, sloth and torpor, which is like a sleepiness, doubt, and remorse and rest, restlessness. Those are the five hindrances. So the hindrances are generally considered to be more, a little bit more circumstantial and superficial where the defilements as they're known are really more like core patterns of our personality. So the first way to even know what psychological material we have is to be aware of actually the content that's taking us off of our meditation object or the material where we're getting caught up in, um, in thinking, you know, that's, that's really taking us away from being in the present moment where we're getting identified with the thought patterns. And those are some easy categories to put the patterns in. But then you may notice some more specifics like um, uh, being irritated in a way that if somebody else does something I think they shouldn't be doing, I feel very self-righteous about it. So that would still be aversion, but you can see that's a particular flavor of aversion. Or another version of, uh, of aversion would be fear. Fear also falls in the aversion bucket. So um, there could be, you know, on the cushion, we could be thinking about, is my job secure? you know, gosh, the economy, you know, it's, things are a little precarious. Somebody could find themselves just perpetually worrying about things over and over. And if it's not worrying about this, then it's worrying about that and could see a pattern of, of worrying um, maybe beyond what the circumstance warrants. And so this is what I'm talking about in terms of seeing the patterns. And um, that's the first thing. Because usually whatever we're seeing on the cushion, those are the same patterns that are going on all the time underneath our level of awareness all day long. It's just when we meditate, we're actually seeing what they are. And this is one of the great benefits of meditation is it lets us see them where most people who don't meditate really often aren't even aware that they're there. So, um, so it's not necessarily a bad thing that we're getting to see these. And um, 
so this is kind of the first place. And then we can also start being aware of how the same pattern is showing up in our life and our relationships in places where we get triggered in, you know, maybe difficult issues we've had in our lives with, with work, with relationships, with, you know, whatever area, whatever sector of life they happen to be happening. Usually we can see the same thing off the cushion in our life as we're functioning that we can see going on on the cushion. So that gives a place to start being curious. And this is where we bring the off the cushion Vipassana. Really Vipassana at its core is investigating the experiences that are arising within our awareness. And so we're using that same skill that we developed in Vipassana to investigate and be curious about these patterns. And the idea is that if we can be with these patterns on the cushion, what, what's happening, one of the things that's happening with Vipassana is like, say something like aversion arises, we're meditating and there's some noise outside, or we have a neighbor who always is, make, you know, they play their radio too loud or something. Um, we can see the aversion arising. And one of the great things about Vipassana is that instead of being completely identified with our reaction to it, with the phenomena and the reaction, we can get some space from it so that we're not just totally um, caught up in whatever the patterning is. So instead of just feeling irritated, we can notice, gosh, I'm irritated. And just the space of either noting, you know, usually in Vipassana, we can either note, you know, give it a label, or we can just notice what's happening. Either of those are valid. Um, but just by doing that and noticing what's happening, all of a sudden, there's a little bit of space there. We're not completely identified with whatever reaction might be arising. And so this in itself is a benefit. So when we're exploring this later off the cushion, like say we notice, okay, I tend to get uh, annoyed at, you know, this, this category of phenomena that arise. Really what we can do is start being curious about our experience without judgment, preferably um, without a predetermined knowing, just really being open and curious. I wonder what's going on with me. Why do I find that so triggering? Why do I always get upset when that happens? And um, we get curious, really. We're talking about an open heart, open-minded, open-hearted curiosity into our experience to understand more than we do right now. So if all we're doing is rehashing the same thing we already understand, that's not opening anything up. To, to investigate it with a curiosity that helps us learn more about why that's happening and about what's going on is a way to, to open it up and, and sort of make it be less like compacted and solid. And um, really most of the personality, you could look at it psychologically as being made up of um, defense mechanisms so, so ways that we develop to be okay in our environment as kids, and then we keep using this pattern. Um, 
self-images of who we are that we're defending. So like maybe I feel like I'm a good person. And so a good person doesn't go over to the neighbor and say, could you please turn down your radio? And so instead of going, just going to my neighbor neutrally, not angry, just in the spirit of good neighborship, going over and saying, would it be possible to turn that down? You know, it's, I'm, it's a little loud over on my end. And if I'm doing anything that you don't like, please tell me, you know, that's doing it without any, that's making a request. But if I have the self-image that I'm a nice person, that I just tolerate everything, instead of going and just making the request, I'll sit there and feel angry for days or months or weeks or years and not just go and make a simple request. So this is where self-images can come in. Um, and then beliefs is the other. Beliefs is a big part of what we can get attached to that may keep us in a lot of suffering because we're attached to certain beliefs that really aren't, aren't serving us. So these are the kinds of things, defense mechanisms, um, identities, self-images and beliefs that, that maybe we could get some insight if we were really curious about what's going on. Um, now I'll just go on to say the second, this is a more sort of advanced um, aspect of Vipassana. I'm not recommending using it right now, but I just want to mention it. So as Vipassana, as the practice goes deeper, people do longer retreats and, and really take it all the way to its very culmination, we can actually start seeing a lot of what's going on in our patterning, especially in our personality patterning, that is, um, we can actually start seeing it as kind of empty. So when I start opening it up, that's part of what that's pointing to is getting some space in there into these things that feel really, really solid, you know, beliefs that, um, that are really like my neighbor just shouldn't be doing that and they're wrong and they're always inconsiderate and, and they do these five other things that are annoying too. And, you know, you can sort of feel getting really worked up about it in there. That's very, very compacted and solid. There's not much room in there for some um, left for less suffering, really. So this is where a lot of times when we're when we're curious and we use the investigation aspect of Vipassana as well as the detachment of not being completely identified with the phenomena that are rising in our awareness, we start getting more space. And it's possible really to see even some fairly entrenched feelings and beliefs and such to really see that at their very core, there is a certain kind of emptiness to them. And I'll just I probably told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it again, because for me, this was a really big turning point in my own practice. After one of the month long retreats at Spirit Rock, I used to attend them every year for years, I attended them. And this was probably maybe my second one or third one. I hope it was early on because it was a really big insight for me. But after the retreat, I was down at the uh, dining hall and we had broken silence and everybody was talking and I was talking to one of my friends who was on the retreat who I, you know, hadn't talked with or communicated with for the whole month. And I, I was saying to him, 
and I have really good hearing. So I was saying to him, you know, did you see that one person, they were coming to the sittings late, you know, half the time and the door would bang and they'd come in and rustle around and make a big commotion. And it was just so rude. And, you know, I'm going on and on about the person with all my judgments. And, and my friend turned to me and he said, oh, that didn't bother me at all. <laughs> and I just was like, really? You know, I just felt so justified in my self-righteousness, you know, because it was against the rules and things. But the point was that the same exact stimulus that happened to him was the same phenomenon. Nothing was different about the phenomena, but he didn't suffer. He didn't suffer because of that. And I did. And that was the moment when I realized, you know what? There's actually an another choice here. I could not suffer. And it was really a moment of insight and freedom for me to get that it was optional. And this is when the Buddha talks about, you know, the first arrow is the circumstances that arise in life of which pain and, and unsatisfactoriness is inevitable as a human. It's inevitable, first noble truth. But the second arrow is all of the stuff we add on top of it that really is optional. It's optional. And so this is when I talk about the emptiness that we can, you know, that can happen in Vipassana, where we actually see through a very entrenched position or belief or defense mechanism or way of seeing ourselves or the world, when we can, you know, sometimes those things can open up and really they can, we can see that um, those are a construct and I don't have to hold on to that. And so this is, you know, a deeper aspect of the path. When one gets far enough along, sometimes you can see these things just as emptiness. It's an actual practice of going straight to the emptiness. But I don't recommend that unless you've had the direct experience of it, because it can result, there's a danger of spiritual bypassing in that. So, but I just wanted to put it out there that there is a way sometimes, like if you've had that experience yourself with something, um, where there have been times when um, uh, you've seen through a certain pattern that you have in your bones, like it's real for you, it's not just a concept. Sometimes you can go back there and remind yourself that, you know, three weeks ago this happened and I really wasn't this upset. And, and you can feel into what really made that true for you in such a way that it's real and it's not just a conceptual overlay. Because if we do it all th through concepts only, this stuff gets pushed down into our unconscious and then it just blares out in other ways when we're not looking. So that's, I'm not recommending that, but if it's real, if it's authentic and genuine, that is another way of working with psychological material that comes up. Like I had a student the other day, I was doing an individual session with somebody, one of my teachers in training, actually, I have five teachers in training right now. And um, he was saying that he, his, he, he had a busy day and his sink um, pipe overflowed and he immediately started thinking that his partner had left something, let something go down the drain and it clogged and he was getting all worked up and upset at her. And, you know, he just stopped and said to himself, 
stop it. You know, this is, it's not her fault. You just don't want to fix it. And you're having to take it out on somebody. And he actually was able to just cut through it at that point and have it not bother him. So, you know, there are ways that we can cut through and, um, and, and it be genuine. So that's out there as an option. But coming back to the, the inquiring and investigating thread, um, we can see, so there's kind of two categories of this kind of material. One is con just conditioned habits. So we have a habitual way of reacting to something that just we're sort of on autopilot with it. And sometimes those are easier to work with because if we see another option, um, we're, we can try it and it can be better. So this is where things like, you know, finding better ways to communicate maybe with others, communication skills or conflict, you know, finding new ways to handle conflict, nonviolent communication. Those are more like skills oriented that we can add skills that we give us more options. That's a little easier to work with than what I would call undigested material. So undigested material is when something happened at some point in our life, usually when we were younger children, most of the personality patterns get formed by like the age of eight or nine. And um, it was too much for us to really be able to deal with at the time. And so we developed a defense mechanism around it and the original material that um, caused it is kind of buried in our unconscious. So there may be some pain involved in challenging the pattern. So like, for example, if I'll go back to the one I said that I, yeah, somebody has a self-image of being a good person, a nice person, and maybe in their family when they challenged or um, challenged the parent or, or were expressed dissatisfaction with something they really a person really got sort of smacked down well that's got an added sting to it that there could be some painful memories especially if there's anything like abuse or trauma involved and there's another whole layer on top of it that really needs to be worked with that's in the category that i'm calling undigested material that can be a little bit more um, in depth to work with and um, and that's where I really feel that doing psychological work, if, if we discover that either there's trauma or there's some deeper material that really needs to be worked with, doing a period of, of counseling really can be a huge supportive adjunct to Buddhist practice. And I really believe that you can't solve everything necessarily with spiritual practice, that psychological work can be a really important adjunct that has some specialized methodologies involved, like trauma work. You know, this is really coming out in, in recent years as a whole specialized area that um, we've, we're just now learning about how to work with uh, within psychology. And we don't want to just keep coming at it with um, practices that may either re-trigger the trauma or uh, not maybe be as time efficient for working through it. So I'll, I'll just put that out there for the undigested material as an option as well. Um, another way of working with um, 
I'll go back to the personality patterning. Another way of working skillfully with our patterning is a tool, the tool of the Enneagram. How many of you just show of hands are familiar with the Enneagram or have worked with it? Yeah, quite a few of you. I know a lot of you at IMT have had, um, have done some work on it within IMT. I really like the Enneagram. I work with it a lot. You know, I, every week I have sessions with at least 10 people, 15 people, you know, I've had sessions with people all day today and I use it, even if people don't know what their Enneotype is, I can use it when I'm working with someone to just, it's a shortcut for understanding ourselves and others. And um, I might, I might do just a one night overview of the Enneagram as part of this series, just to give you, you know, a taste of it and also how I work with it in, um, doing spiritual inner work, but it's a great um, tool for, if it's used properly, I think there are a lot of misuses of the Enneagram out there where it just reinforces the personality patterning. So if it's used as a spiritual tool, which is really what was it was intended for, and, and most of my Enneagram training comes from Sandra Maitre, who has some wonderful books out there. There's a lot of great books on the Enneagram, but just so you know what orientation I'm coming from is from her and, and um, also Rizzo and Hudson. Um, the Enneagram can be used as a tool to really find our way back to our deeper nature that is beyond that conditioning. So it can be a shortcut where we can see, um, like it's like we're the fish who don't see the water around us. You know, it can help us sh show us some of the water around us based on our enneotype and be a bit of a shortcut to work with our our unique configuration of personality patterning. Um, so that is another tool that's out there for working with and and being curious about investigating our. Um, our habitual patterning and, and ways to find some freedom from it and, and challenge some of those deep, like core held um, self images and identities, and also to have some compassion for why they're there. This is a big part of um, doing when we're really investigating this, sometimes usually we'll hit some hard places in our history that are why these patterns are there. I mean, they aren't just there randomly, they're there because we needed them, you know? So there's a way where I really feel that we have to have respect for those patterns because they have served us in some way. Even something like anger that might not feel that good to have. Like I've had people often say to me, why would somebody wanna have anger? Well, it's not exactly that you wanna have it, but it does, Anger, for example, um, can give a person a, um, a sense of, um, of empowerment, you know? Anger can make you feel strong. It makes you feel like you've got some oomph to, to take on something, that you can stand in the face of something. So the core energy that's behind the anger isn't really, I mean, if we believe that everything that manifests is coming from the ground of being, from what I would call the absolute, which I do believe, then how is it that it gets distorted into things that are harmful? 
Well, the core energy of anger, the way I understand it, is strength. So strength, there's nothing wrong with strength. We need to have strength. I mean, like one of the ways I think about strength in its most, in a very pure form is um, it's spring now where I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so the poppies, our state flower are coming out and I'll be driving down a you know six lane freeway and there'll be a little poppy just coming out right next to the freeway with 18 wheelers going by it, you know? And I think that's strength. That is the kind of strength you see in nature for a little plant to come out and knock away a rock so that it can grow. This is natural to have strength. But when, we, when it's causing us and others suffering and it gets distorted into anger, that's when there's another option that, um, that can keep the strength but not have it turn into something destructive. And so this is where, um, you know, seeing, okay, well, if, I, if I'm getting into places where maybe like in my executive coaching work, I've worked many times with executives who maybe had an anger management issue and their job was on the line because of it. These people were motivated, you know, they wanted to not lose their jobs. And so what's really going on behind that, that um, if we can take off the distortion, we can keep the strength, but not have it turn into something where you're actually causing, doing things that you regret later. So anger, you know, what else feels good about anger? Well, a lot of times we could feel superior. We and I'm speaking out of my own experience. I'm not saying, you know, any of these things are foreign to me. Um, Self-righteous, um, we can manage powerlessness. Like say we feel in a situation where we're powerless, feeling angry, we might not be able to do anything about the situation. But if I feel angry inside, I can at least, you know, feel like I've got something. I'm not just powerless. Sometimes we actually have to go and feel the powerlessness. You know, feel that the truth is I'm really sad and frustrated that I can't actually do anything. I think our recent political histories, a lot of people felt very frustrated because they really felt like they couldn't do anything. And so, you know, this, this is ways that I'm pointing to when we open up these threads, we can gain more insight and get to the place where there's an actually a deeper truth where there can be some resolution or at least some de-escalating. You know, I, one of my favorite um, terms that I like to use is the thinning of the me. So we, we start sandpapering down the, the more sort of gross versions of the personality material so that they're thinner and they're causing less remorse and regret on our part and also with others. So, um, so that's anger. I talked about fear. So, so what's good about fear? I mean, why would anybody want to feel fear? It's, again, some of these, it's hard to, if we really explore it, um, sometimes people will ask me, what, you know, I don't want to have the fear, but I can't help it. Well, what is fear? If we assume that fear is coming from something that at its core is coming from the grounded being, and it's just a distortion that's turning into something that's overdone or underdone. Well, fear is curiosity on hyperdrive. 
It's like over alertness, you know? I used to have rabbits and rabbits are the epitome of fear because they're, um, everyone eats them, you know? <laughs> I mean, they have good reason to be always looking around. But um, I could really feel having rabbits that this was, they, this, and the Enneagram, they were the fear type, you know, their whole species was a six. So, um, so, but really that's what fear is, is it's a distortion of curiosity, of, of being alert to what's going on. And um, the, our survival instinct can really get a hold of fear and make it go on um, to a level that is beyond what the situation actually calls for. So this is part of where we can, when we're really following our own, you know, there's a way that in, in the diamond approach, which I've been involved in for about 15 years now, there's a practice called following a th your thread. So this is where you'll get curious about one of your own personality patterns. Just take one at a time. Don't try and work five of them at a time, but like fear or anger, um, to just start getting curious. Okay, where is this coming up in my life? Well, I see it on the cushion. I'm you know, getting pulled off of my object because I'm going into a fear pattern. I can see it at work. I can see it, I'm afraid that my partner's gonna leave or you know, that I won't have enough money to retire, or, you know, I won't be able to get a job. And I'm obsessing over this over and over again. Can I just be curious about what's going on there? And this is where if we can take away the inner critic in us, that is, um, that is telling us we have to do it. Well, you have to have that fear or else bad things will happen. Or if you don't have anger, they'll walk all over you or, you know, whatever that, that inner critic is saying to reinforce those patterns. Because basically, in a nutshell, I could do a whole Dharma talk on the inner critic. Maybe I'll do that at some point. But the we have the ego self, and then we have the inner critic, the superego, and the two the, the superego keeps the ego in place. So if we don't start to confront that inner critic, if we just do whatever it says, then it's going to be hard to have these personality patterns get thinner. So this is where really working with that inner critic that's now trying to tell us you have to have that fear, that anger, whatever it is, um, getting that to back off a little bit will give enough space that these patterns can be opened up and um, thinned out a little bit. Another way to work with um, these, a thread, you know, with one of these threads that you might explore is to really, and this goes back to Vipassana again, to really feel it in the body and to know that emotion, if it's an emotional um, thread that you're working, to just let yourself feel the body experience without letting it turn into where now it's fear. Like fear might feel like, well, I have butterflies in my stomach. My stomach's tight. You know, my breathing feels really shallow. Well, teasing apart those specific physical phenomena, sensations, that's really different than jumping all the way to I'm afraid. 
You know, it's another way of opening up the phenomena and making it less compact and solid and tight. So feeling and being, just being with the um, physical sensations of it, those will arise and pass, especially if we can have some space from it using Vipassana to get some space from just the feeling of fear. You know, I'm thinking about losing my job, now I have fear, and now I'm just off in a, a whole slew of worrying. Well, if, it's, if we instead be curious about it, um, okay, what's going on in my body? I'm feeling these body sensations. I, you know, you're not saying all those words to yourself, but you're just with the direct experience. That can also de-escalate the intensity of the feelings. And all this can be done off the cushion. I mean, you can you can be exploring these things while you're driving somewhere or, you know, waiting for something, or you can journal and have some self-reflective time that way. So, um, so all of these are great ways to work with our with psychological material. And so just quickly, I'll add that in the Samatha practice, which I haven't gone in to it all tonight, but really what we're doing with that is we're coming back to the breath and we're, we're learning to turn away and get disinterested in our story. So what that's cultivating is more of a capacity to, instead of ruminating for long periods of time about something, we can finally just go, you know what, I'm, I'm ruminating and I'm just not gonna let myself keep rehashing this internally. And we have the capacity to be able to turn away and, and work with it if we're gonna work with it or just not ruminate. And then there's the Brahma Viharas, which are beautiful practices. I think anytime we're working with psychological material, it's, it's important to have compassion for ourselves. And if possible to see it through the eyes of equanimity, it's equanimity is kind of the hardest of the Brahma Viharas in a lot of situations but to um, realize that we can't always understand why things are happening the way they are. And from our limited perspective as a single human, we may not ever know why, but we can have a certain kind of peace with the bigger picture of our, of our Buddhist practice and, um, and to have peace anyway. So they are great practices to apply. And you're going to be having a whole practice period on the Brown Viharas, it sounds like. So you can explore those more deeply there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.